Get a little more out of watching NBA games with Daily Fantasy. Every Larry Nance Jr. dunk, Lillard 3, or Zeller block means so much more when you're playing with DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code TBPN to receive $200 in free bets when you place $1 bet on any football game. And get a free shot at a million top prize with your first deposit. That's promo code TBPN for a limited time, only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Welcome back, Bucket Busters. I'm your host, Tim Johnson. And this is the Busted Bucket Podcast. Locally grown here in Portland, Oregon, the city of roses, city of bridges, stump town, PDX. This is a show dedicated to Rip City and everyone who loves Portland basketball. Joining me on this episode are my co-host, Blazer Ben, and the Rip City Encyclopedia, Eric Foster. How we doing, guys? Bingo, bingo, bongo, Blazer fans. I am just blessed to see another day, fellas. Right on. Well, I've got a special treat for you guys. For this episode, we welcome Oregon Sports Hall of Fame journalist, television and radio personality, part-time actor, author, and Portland sports institution, the godfather himself, Dwight, is there anything you haven't done, James? Welcome to the show, sir. <laughs> Thanks. It's, uh, I hope, going to be a fun experience. <laughs> well, I hope so, too. <laughs> if you're still friends with Aaron Fentress... He, he had a good time. We went a lot longer with him than we planned, but he was a really good sport, and he was, yeah, he gave us some glowing reviews, but that might have been the gift card where is in the mail form for Burger King, so. <laughs> he loves his Whoppers. <laughs> yes, he does. Let's just dive right into it, guys. Um, Dwight, there's a, a very serious question that we ask every guest that comes on our show. In regards to maybe the greatest player of all time, or maybe the greatest player that you've seen personally, because you've been around for a while, we need someone to settle the Michael Jordan versus LeBron James debate. Who's better? I thought you were talking about the greatest player I've ever seen. <laughs> well, we, we can go that route. <laughs> so who is it, Dwight? Who's, who's the greatest player you've ever seen? Uh, without question, Will Chamberlain is the best player I've ever seen. Uh, nobody today has seen anything like it. He was so far ahead of his time. Uh, we're talking about major, major factor in track and field. 400-meter uh, runner, sprinter, high jumper, uh, world-class volleyball player, tremendous athlete who happened to be seven feet tall. He could beat you up and down the floor. He could make whatever shots you wanted. Uh, and he took it easy on people all the time. He could have scored so many more points. Uh, he felt sometimes like he didn't want to bully people around. So he finessed a lot more. He didn't dunk as often as a lot of people. He'd rather show you that he had skills enough to make shots. And uh, he was just an incredible player. And uh, it's too bad that uh, uh, one of my pet peeves in sports is people get caught up in the whole ring thing how many rings did he win well yeah bill russell 
people will say, well, Boston people will say that Russell was better, but he wasn't. And, and it wasn't even close, really. But Russell played on all those championship teams, and he happened to play for one of the best coaches in NBA history, Red Auerbach, who was also a great GM and, and well ahead of his time. And he also played with multiple Hall of Famers his entire career. So uh, I, I really do believe that and a lot of guys who saw Will say the same thing. He was just such an incredible force. I mean, you talk about averaging 50 a game. You talk about never fouling out in his entire career. You, you talk about all the things that he did, averaging 48.5 minutes per game for an entire season. All the things he did were incredible. Yeah. Now, I suppose you wanted to talk about Jordan versus LeBron. Well, I think not necessarily. <laughs> Go ahead, Eric. I feel like for a lot of us, uh, I'm a Jordan guy. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Jordan guy. Uh, I I just uh, I favor finesse over power, um, and um, Jordan was uh, aesthetically probably the best I saw because of his body control, his ability to do things other people couldn't do, and um, wasn't really gifted with the sort of size and power that LeBron has. But I think a much more consistent force throughout his career than LeBron has been. So for me, uh, I'm also a Jordan guy. Love Mike. Grew up on him. Unfortunately, I did, I wasn't rooting for him in 92, obviously. But there is a different approach to the game that you saw with a guy like Michael. And then that kind of carried over into the Kobe Bryants that I... And I'm not a LeBron hater, but I just don't see that same dedication to the game with LeBron James. Oh, I would agree with that, honestly, Eric. I, I think you're right. And, and I think, you know, the times are different, too. And obviously, LeBron's involved in so many outside issues and other things that he does. But uh, on the court, it shows a little bit that he's not as dedicated to some of the things that Jordan was. I don't think he's a perfectionist with his game the way uh, Jordan was. But... Um, that hasn't stopped him from becoming a great right. player. He, he, he was just so physically gifted from the start. I mean, uh, he was uh, a grown-up way before the others were in high school when he was playing against them. And he's just been one of those guys ahead of the curve throughout his career. And uh, uh, I'm interested to see how it goes as he ages and, and he started that process now, I think. I think we're starting to see a, a bit of a downturn. And, and I think it's complicated by injuries that are inevitable when you play as many games as he has and as long as he has. So it's going to be interesting to see how the end of his career looks. I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, as much as I love talking about this topic, um, we are a Trailblazers focused podcast. So let's let's pivot here. Let's talk about the the offseason moves. We had a very large change. I mean, really it was a it was a change in the guard. We've got the departure of Stotts and the hiring of Chauncey Billups. Now, Dwight, we wanted to know what what you kind of feel like you can expect to see almost almost as like a comparison or, or, or a contrast from Stotts' system versus Chauncey's system. We all know that it's going to be more defensively focused, but is there anything else that maybe, you know, the rest of us are missing here 
that that we should be seeing you think well uh, i would say for the last year or two uh, stats didn't really have a system they they had it all broken down and and i don't think he was doing as much coaching as he did earlier in portland i think he had handed the keys to the car over to damian willard and dame was doing pretty much what he wanted and they had no real concept of what to do defensively they they would try things but they wouldn't stick with them i mean the front office brought in uh, you know somebody to help them out in the off season and to help the coaching staff out and they in the preseason they tried a defensive system where they doubled more they blitzed screens they did some things uh, didn't work so well and before you knew it they just jumped that and went back to what they were doing before and and the terrible way that they consistently played the pick and roll and all those things and i and i just didn't see enough creativity or experimentation i didn't see a dedication to any one system and i think that's going to all go out the window with chauncey billups i happen to think chauncey billups is going to be a terrific coach just from the way i see him interacting with people and have seen it over the years he's very direct he's very positive about what he thinks needs to be done in basketball and how he thinks the game should be played and from what he's saying already i believe he's going to insist on certain things and i think it's going to make the job really difficult for him because these players here their core group has been playing together quite a while under basically no system players have been doing pretty much what they want they've broken into a, a basic iso system on offense which has gotten them points because Dame can get points that way but it's not a real workable sustainable thing to do in the playoffs and it never has been Nate McMillan did a lot of it he did a lot of it with Brandon Roy and when they got to the playoffs it was shut down for the most part cuz that, that one guy just can't beat five and and you're not giving your other players enough touches for them to stay sharp So when you throw them the ball with 2 minutes to go and expect them to make a shot, that's a pretty difficult thing to do. And and we've seen that over and over and I think it was happening here the last couple of years. And so I think Chauncey Billups has a big job. He not only has to remake the defense and provide structure where there has been very little structure, but he's also got to remake the offense. They have to get more touches for people. I think Dame's scoring average has to go down just like all the great players have understood, you know, Jordan, Wilt, all of them had to learn that if they scored 50 or 38 a game, that wasn't necessarily conducive to their team's winning. And I think that has to happen here too. So, uh, a big job for Chauncey, I think. And they really there's so much they can do defensively. I don't think people understand. There's a thousand ways to play the pick and roll and they basically played it one way for the most part. And and they would throw a few things in once in a while against a James Harden or something. But it wasn't a part of their package game to game. They were easy to prepare for. They they didn't fool anybody. Their offense didn't get them baskets like it should. If they had a basket it was from Dame or CJ going one on one uh, against somebody. And that, that's just The game's not being played that way. You could see 
in the finals this year, how the game has returned to a more structured pattern and teams are running more offense, getting better shots and getting points from people you wouldn't expect to because as the stat guys have shown, a wide open shot for an average shooter is better than a contested shot for a great shooter. And, and so you have to play to that. You have to understand that in the way you set your team up. And I'm sorry, I'm long-winded. That's okay. No, that's that's quite all right. We enjoy the insight. Ben, I think yeah. you had a question. You mentioned like how Stotts kind of lost control in the last couple of years, you know, because it, you know, it was pretty much player-centered, you know, coaching for themselves. Do you feel that the transition into Chauncey is going to be a, a quick buy-in from the players, or is it going to take a lot of extra added work from Chauncey and his assistants to get everybody on the same page? Uh, I think that's a good question, Ben, and, and I, I'm not entirely sure myself the answer to that. But I do believe part of why Chauncey Billups was selected as the coach is he has that sort of gravitas that he can walk into a locker room in the NBA and get immediate respect. People not only respect the fact that he's won a championship, they respect his leadership abilities and his knowledge of the game. That was well known before he ever became head coach in Portland. He's very respected among players. And and I think that's going to help him a lot. But I still believe it's going to be very difficult to shake off some of these habits from the past. And it might take half a season for, for what he's trying to do to really take over. I mean, with, with uh, Scotty Brooks coming in, uh, is that going to be helpful or hurtful uh, in a sense of, of him being the, the assistance role versus the head coaching role? Well, I, I think it's going to be very helpful. Uh, I, I, you almost have to bring a former head coach in when your head coach is a first-time head coach. There's just so many things these guys aren't aware of that they have to do. I, I mean, the head guy has so much responsibility with the media, with the PR department, with even uh, agents, all, all these things that they're bothered by. And I, and I think it's great to have Scotty there who's going to give him a heads up, who's going to warn him, who's going to work with him on, here's how you handle these situations. And I think um, Scott Brooks is a good guy to do this too, I think, because he's been an assistant, he's been a head coach, he knows the ropes, he knows every player and team in the league. So he's going to be a valuable advisor. But but not only that, I, I think he's going to be very giving uh, in terms of help. And, and there's certain guys you could bring in, and the only thing they'd want to do is keep their eye on the hot seat of the head coach and try to get his job as soon as he can get the head coach fired. And that that's not the situation here that I see. And I don't think Scott Brooks is that guy. I, I think you're going to get um, a really, I think it's going to be a real good situation. I, I think you're going to have basically two head coaches. Late in games, you know, I think it's really hard for a guy who hasn't been a head coach got 24 seconds to go what are you going to run what play are you going to run or defensively how are you going to play this do you want to try something different do you want to throw something different at him you want to play your hardcore defense what do you want to do so I, I think it's really beneficial to have another head coach there to lean on in those kinds of situations i mean i i think terry stotts lost a lot when jay triano left the blazers he was huge for this team 
all those great out of bounds plays they they ran to win games those were all jays he ran those plays he drew them up and he he ran them earlier in his coaching career and I, and i think it's really beneficial to have that guy on your staff who's been around and in the last few years their staff's been very young it's been guys from the G League, D League, up, you know, getting their first opportunity as assistants, and, and nothing against those guys. They did a good job with development and everything, but I think that wise old guy on the bench really helps. I'm curious, why do you think Terry Stotts did not get a second chance this offseason at another head coaching position? Uh, well, Eric, honestly, I, I think it speaks to how you've perceived in the league. I I think people looked at this team and thought they should be better than they are. And I, I felt that the last two years. Uh, this, to me, was a very disappointing season. Um, I don't think players were used appropriately. Um, Terry didn't. He just wouldn't commit to young players ever. He was never willing to say, okay, we're trying a new defensive system and it might cost us a couple games early. I'm willing to do that to get this defensive system in. Or, hey, I know it's going to hurt us to play uh, Nasir Little a little more, but we're going to play him and stick with him and see if he can blossom into a player. There isn't any of that. He was never willing to give up even a game for developmental purposes, for experimentation with his system, none of that. Every game was Armageddon, and and I think uh, it's hard to do that. It's really difficult. You have to once in a while. Um, it's like load management. Sit a guy out once in a while. He's playing 40 minutes a night. You've got to be willing to lose a battle once in a while to win the war. And I think all smart coaches do that. The best coaches are all doing that, but it hasn't been done. I've got a quick question for you, Dwight. You mentioned... Um not utilizing players appropriately. And one of the things we saw last season, especially in the second half, is uh, Derek Jones Jr., who we all know there was a trade recently. Um, I think he went to Chicago. But Derek Jones Jr. was one of those guys where you thought there's got to be so much more that he can offer the team than what he's already what, what, what he's giving us. Because, you know, the, the guy's a freak athlete. But we're not seeing him attacking the rim like he should. There's no alley oops from Dame. Um, you know, it, basically, it seemed like Stotts was just playing him um, just for his defense. But then, second half of the season comes around, and he's gone. Where'd he go? Do you have any <laughs> insight as to why Derek Jones Jr. was not seeing the court? Tim, I have nothing for you on that part. <laughs> we tried. And the fact that it was a pandemic season and we couldn't get close to anybody really hurt. It was the hardest season to cover a team I've ever had in all my years in any sport because there's just no contact. You had no way of gaining any information that everybody else didn't already have. So I don't know. But I can tell you, he, he misused Derek Jones Jr. terribly. He tried to turn him into another Al Farouk Amin. I mean, the shots he gets are corner threes. That's not his thing. Get him. He's got to get three or four lob chances a game. you got to get him out in open court. And incidentally, Terry always said they wanted to run. They didn't want to run. They never wanted to run. He wanted to walk the ball up the floor. You could see that. And they obviously never worked on running. Because teams that want to run, 
know how to run and you can watch them play and know that that's what they practice and and this team never has it never was good at getting the ball out of the hoop and or getting the rebound either way and getting up the floor throwing an outlet pass spreading the floor three on two and handling that so this is the worst three on two team i've ever seen <laughs> they throw the ball into the fifth row so uh yeah getting back to jerry Jones jr i don't know what happened but I would like to have seen him here another year just to see what a different coach would have done with him. They've never thrown lobs here throughout Stotts' entire tenure. And I suggested, I was laughed at for suggesting, look, Andre Miller, I don't know what he's doing, but I know he'd take a few bucks to come in here and work with your guards on throwing lobs. He's the best I've ever seen. I think he's the best in the history of the league at throwing lobs. He's terrific. He gets thrown from three-quarter court. And... and, and those are easy baskets. And when you have people, I mean, Anthony Simons, the guy can sky. Get him a lob every night. You know, there's no reason. I know he's a guard. You can get him on a back cut. Get him, get him a lob. And, and I think it has to be a part of what you do because it changes the way teams defend the weak side if your guy's going to be ducking for a lob all the time. So anyway, I think it was another failing of the previous administration. And unfortunate for Jerry Jones Jr. because I believe it was a wasted season for him. I, I agree. And I think we all agree um, with your, your thoughts about um, Derek Jones Jr. But you mentioned Anthony Simons, who I was going to bring up before you even mentioned his name. That's another guy that I feel uh, is is not or has not been utilized correctly. I mean, he's been forced into the point guard role when really it seems like he may not be a, a traditional point guard he's more of of a of a combo guard that needs to get out there and score and eric i know he was gonna bring it up we brought it up on our last episode anthony simons had more dunks in the dunk contest than he did the entire season yeah it's another guy that just i know was underutilized yeah, I, I think he should be playing much more off the ball than on the ball. I, I don't think there's any doubt. I don't think uh, ball handling is his strong suit. He's he's an adequate passer, but not a great passer. And uh, I, I think the two-point guard should probably be Dan CJ, period, and let the others play off the ball. Um, combo guards can have the ball occasionally, and I'm not knocking that, but you've got to let a guy – look, I, the greatest coach I've ever seen in Portland wasn't Jack Ramsey, it was Rick Adelman. And the key to Rick Adelman's success was he knew how to set up offenses so that every player was in position to do what he did best. He, he practically invented the pick and pop because they found that Duckworth was better on 12 to 15 foot jump shots than he was at the low block. And he was really good at the low block with both hands. But the game was moving away from that, and they got Duck out away from the basket a little bit, and it really enhanced their offense, and it opened up the middle for more uh, slashes by by uh, Kersey and Drexler. And, and there's just better ways to use players than has been done here in the last couple of years. One big guy for me. I, oh, I, sorry. I, go ahead, Tim. No, no, please. It, we were talking about Simons. We were talking about Derrick Jones Jr., that leads me to the guy that I think was most underutilized, which was Yusuf Nurkic, who I believe is the best passer on the Blazers. I mean, the guy is lethal from, you know, foul line extended all the way down, you know, getting those lobs. I just, I never understood why we, he didn't play out of the high post more and Terry didn't go to him. 
Uh, I, I would agree with you, Eric. Uh, I think he's a hypo center, basically. As good as he is inside, but I do think he's a hypo center because of his passing ability. And, and he's gotten to the point where he'll make the elbow jumper for you and uh, can put it on the floor for one or two dribbles and get to the basket. And, and again, misused because basically because the two guards had the ball and often were taking half of the team's shots, those two guys. And I don't think that's really the appropriate way to run a championship basketball team. I think the wealth has to be spread. Many nights where Covington was on fire and didn't get any shots in the second half after going seven for eight in the first half or whatever. You guys have seen it. I mean, it's just inexplicable stuff going on where you just, why is this Why is this happening? Why isn't this guy on the floor? He was hotter than hell. He was five for five from three in the first half and not playing in the second half. I've seen this going all the way back to Myers. Myers Leonard, another player, terribly misused. Basically kind of screwed his career up because here, when they're searching for shot makers and he doesn't play, okay. And then, and then the guy, I can tell you some, well. Please. <laughs> I could tell you a conversation where the coach was saying, I, I, the coach was asked at one point, if you could get a 6'10", 6'11", guy who could make threes and could run and could catch anything, and you can get them for free, would you take them? And the answer from the coach was, I would kill to get them. I said, he's sitting right over there on the end of your bench. Put him on the floor once in a while and let him shoot. Because we see, right, elimination game in the playoffs against Golden State, and he's getting 26 in the first half or whatever it was. And it's like, if a guy does that once in the playoffs, believe me, it, it, that's not a one-time occurrence. That's not a fluke. He could shoot the lights out, and, and, and he always could. But it's the same. I mean, he didn't play Pat Connaughton enough either. Patty Connaughton was a hell of a player. I don't know. I, I, I get so frustrated. It's like when Patty Mills was here. Patty Mills got no chance. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and look at him I now, just thriving. Grief. Guy's been in the league forever. Yeah. He's, he's one of the best players well, in Portland. Thriving his first I, I think. I think that's been an issue in Portland for a long time. Is that we don't get these younger guys enough playing time in. It seems like maybe Agreed. they're not so good here. And then as soon as we try, I mean, you go all the way back to Jermaine O'Neal. I mean, it he wasn't getting time. And then he gets traded and, well, he becomes an all-star. He becomes a centerpiece for that team. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of like, well, go ahead, Dwight. Tim, that, that, Tim, that was a case of Bob Whitson who just couldn't keep his, keep his hand off the butt. Yeah. You know, it was like, <laughs> I got to do something. I got to do something. And they had been eliminated by the Lakers, and they felt Jermaine can't guard Shaq. He's not heavy enough. But we saw one game where Dale Davis did a pretty good job on Shaq because he's more physical. <laughs> We're going to go get Shaq. We know Jermaine's going to end up being a pretty good player, but, you know, um, we don't have time to wait. We got a window. That's the same thing that got – that's the same thing that got Drazen Petrovic traded because – they knew, I mean, everybody knew he was a great player, a great shooter, but they had a window and they're trying to get something done right away. And to be honest, I thought bringing Walter Davis here was unbelievable. 
But all of a sudden, Walter Davis got to Portland. He couldn't play anymore, <laughs> you know, and he couldn't make shots, which is what Walter is supposed to come here and do is make shots. And he, and he got here and couldn't do that. So, but another case of giving a player up when a uh, bad idea, you know, just a bad idea. Yeah. You know, we're, we're talking about trades here and, and, you know, we, we just talked about that, that win now mentality for, from that previous team back in, what was that? 2001, 2002. Um, yeah. I guess what I want to ask you is obviously we're in, um, a win now mode with, with Dame maybe head, hitting the, the tail end of his prime years. Um, back in May, you had written an article with the headline, Damian Lillard, game manager, knows when to pick the right spots. My question to you is, this offseason, there, there were a lot of rumors that came out that Dame wanted a trade. Or Dame was threatening a trade if something big doesn't happen because he's in win-now mode. Do you think, or maybe you have insight, as to whether or not his camp may have been, you know, quote unquote, leaking some maybe erroneous information out to the media just to make it a point to maybe Olshay in the front office that something needs to happen and it needs to happen now. Well, you know, it's a very complicated situation. First of all, I, I think Dame was flexing his muscles a little bit, trying to see what the result would be. And uh, I I was a little I was a little upset um, by the whole thing, frankly, because I think there is an element of throwing your teammates under the bus when you do that. Mm -hmm. And there was something said during the season like that, where, you know, we need help. And, you know, this isn't working. And, and the team went into a real funk after that for about a month. And I I, I think that stuff's borderline critical of your teammates. Number two, number two, um, the whole idea, see, it all stems from, again, the ring mentality. He hasn't won a ring, so he's worried that he's not going to be perceived. His, it's all about the legacy. Something that, uh, in the days I started the league, nobody even cared about a legacy. They played, and they let other people sort out the legacy. But people were intelligent enough in all sports to understand that great players don't always end up on great teams, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, or anything else. So to judge a guy on his championships is totally unfair. Has been for years. Totally has been. It takes more than one guy. That's why we're screaming here, bring Dame help. Bring him help, okay? Yeah, Jordan didn't win without Pippen, you know, that, and that's just... That's the way it works. You got to have help. So let's quit saying so and so's better because he won more rings. When in fact, you know, Robert Ory's won a lot of rings and Steve Kerr won a lot of rings. Doesn't make him the best player. But I, I just I hate it. I hate it with NFL quarterbacks too. And and people are now starting to they're starting to say, well, you know, Tom Brady beat this guy. He has. He's five and one against this team or whatever. It's like they're attaching wins to quarterbacks like starting pitchers in baseball. And people now in baseball have understood wins and losses for pitchers are irrelevant. If you if you know anything about analytics now, they understand that 
pitchers can pitch crappy and still get a win, okay, and pitch well and get a loss. And it's the same way with quarterbacks or basketball players. I get so frustrated by that. It's just, it's not the right way to evaluate players. And and so that's what this stems from. Dame is worried that he's not going to be known as a great player unless he wins a championship. So the way you do that is you go to a super team, something that he has always said he didn't want to be a part of. But now he wants to turn this into a super team. Well, I'll tell you what. He's had some help. And there are other players who've done it without. I mean, there's not three superstars in Phoenix. There's really not three superstars in Milwaukee either. And, and, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, I mean, look, C.J. McCollum in the Eastern Conference would have been a three-time All-Star right now. It's just he's playing in the West, so he's not going to be that. So there is help. And, and I, I just, um, I was a little disappointed by that. Does he want out? At some point he might. But we all have to remember, he can't just roll up someday and say, okay, that's it, I'm leaving Portland. He's got a contract that pays him a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. And they'll trade him at some point. But they'll trade him what they want to trade him. And I, I, I firmly believe that. And and I also, um, I, I, if it were me, and I thought he was, if I thought he was going to leave after this season, I would trade him now. I would absolutely trade him. Because the team will be better if you trade him now. And it will be better immediately because you can get a hell of a player for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, then you still got a really good backward. When you have CJ, you have Norman Powell, and you got the kid behind them who can play both guard spots, admittedly more of an off guard. But Simons is really good. He'd be a great third guard. So now you've got a good backcourt and you've added that forward to the cast that you don't have now. So I, I, I would say that's better than being having a gun to your head next season that you have to trade him. And everybody in the league knows you have to trade him. What are you going to get for him? I don't know. So mm-hmm. that's my take on the whole thing. Do you think if there's another first or second round exit, do you think... Dame may request that trade? Uh, yeah, he might. Yeah, he might. I, I think that's possible. But I think it's also, you know, he needs to take some responsibility for what's going on here. Because let me tell you something, and I'll go on record, and I've told him this too. I told him in a text not that long ago. It doesn't matter who he goes to. If he doesn't defend better than he does now, he's not winning a championship. He's got to guard people. And you go back. I I challenge you to go back and look at tapes of some of these games this year. Because I look at every game back. I run every game back. Because I want to see what I thought I saw and make sure that I'm right. Man, there was some real give-ups on defense. And and you just can't play that way. There's just Olay. It's like bullfighter sometimes. And you you just can't do that. It's going to be interesting to see what Chauncey Billups can get from him defensively. Look, he doesn't have to be defensive player of the year. He's just got to pull his weight. And and to do that, he might have to give up some effort on offense, which would be fine Mm -hmm. because the ball needs to move on offense a little more anyway. And again, that's just the way I see it. Tim and I were talking. I think think we're all seeing the same things. Go ahead, Eric. Uh, Tim, when we were outlining 
um, the other day. We were talking about that, and Tim made mention that, you know, Dame has been a one-on-one player most of his career. And I said, I reminded him that, you know, when he had L.A. and when he had Batum and Wesley Matthews, that ball zipped around the court, you know. And at the time, he was also a better defender because he wasn't expelling so much energy putting 55, 60 points on the board to win by two points in overtime, you know? So, and then we had Fentress on, we kind of touched on that as well. Where we, and he said the same thing, you know, maybe Dame only averages 25 a game, but he can divert some of that energy over onto the defensive end because the kid is built like a tank. You know, there's no reason why he cannot defend guards just at an adequate pace. Yeah, Eric, I, I think you're right in terms of the effort and that's what has to happen. A little bit of subtraction from the offensive energy and a little bit of addition to the defensive energy. I don't know, though, physically. He he doesn't really have quick feet like a lot of defenders, side to side, as much as some guys do. But but again, he could be adequate. I I mean, CJ has made remarkable strides defensively and, and had a good year last year defensively. And there's no reason... And a system helps. You've got to have a system where you know where the help is coming from. It, it can't just be on him. He's got to get help. He's got to know where the help's coming from. So that all he has to do, okay, I need to push this guy this way. I need to push him that way. And that's the way good teams play. And they've got all kinds of different options off that. Geez, watch the way uh, the Knicks play defense and watch how sophisticated they are in terms of what they do with their matchups. And they have some guys who are not good defenders, but they still are among the league leaders in defense because they have a system. And that's really what. Agreed. Um, Dwight, I'm going to, I'm going to move us along a little bit here. Um, during this offseason, we also had some some other roster moves. Um, we lost Carmelo. We lost Ennis Cantor. Rondé Hollis-Jefferson not coming back. Um, the guy that we brought in to essentially replace Cantor is Cody Zeller. Now, I'm curious. There's a lot of... I mean, you look out at in, in the, the Twitterverse, if you will... And there's a lot of people who are upset by this, by the fact that we lost Cantor to bring in a guy like Cody Zeller. But I think one thing that that maybe gets lost is that Cantor was essentially unplayable in that Denver series. He was pretty much a non-factor. Replace Cantor with Cody Zeller in Chauncey's system. Do you see this as an upgrade? Uh, yeah, I think I do. Uh, I'll still, you know, you don't see as much of the guys in the Eastern Conference as you'd like. And I, I confess to watching a lot more Western Conference basketball. But my take on Zeller is that he is appreciably better defensively um, than Cantor. And I think probably overall a better offensive player, too. Maybe not as good a rebounder. I don't know. Offensive rebounder. I don't know. Um, <laughs> the thing to keep in mind about Cantor, they could have brought um, the reincarnation of David Robinson in here in a trade, and people would still be upset over losing in his camp. He's just that kind of guy. He's very likable, lovable almost, and very popular with fans and the media and everyone else. So losing him. You, you know, you don't want to be the guy that follows him. That's, that's, that's tough. But 
basketball wise, I think it's an up. You know, I, I I'm gonna have to agree with that. Um, another guy I want to talk about, and we briefly mentioned it earlier. We just traded Derek Jones Jr. and in return got a guy, Larry Nance Jr., who averaged nine points, seven rebounds, three assists, and two steals. But last year, um, is that? I mean, the numbers are are pretty similar with with Derek. Do you see? Uh, Larry fitting in better than Derek Jones Jr. would with with Chauncey's system, and, and, and I don't know how much you've seen of of what Chauncey's going to bring to the table already or not. But I mean, do, is, is Larry that much of an upgrade over Derek? Oh, I think that it's a possibility that he is definitely. I think because of his length and his ability to play both forward spots, his physicality. Um, and really, his passing ability is special. He's a really good passer. And I remember seeing him as a rookie thinking, you know, and I had not seen him. He's not a big guy. He's not a big school guy. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing him the first time as he came out on the court. I thought, first of all, he sure doesn't look like his dad. <laughs> second of all, uh, and he doesn't at all. But second of all, um, they must have drafted him just because he's Larry Nass Jr. You know. Then I saw him play, and I thought, man, this kid can play a little bit. Then when I saw him play again, it's like, wow, he's really improved. Every time I saw him, I thought he was better than the time before. I, I think he's a very intelligent player, as sons of former players often are. They get schooled very well by their parents. And, and I think he has the ability to change things defensively for them. He's just like Covington in terms of opportunistic off the ball. Not necessarily a great one-on-one defender, but an off-ball defender for sure. Gets in passing lanes. He can turn uh, defense into offense pretty fast. Uh, can handle the ball a little bit. And like I say, a really good passer. I, I think they've improved themselves greatly. Uh, adding him as a guy who might be the first person off do you think nance and roco will play together on the court oh yeah i think they i think they probably will it just i i'm waiting to see how much um billups wants to use the three guard lineup you know that has a big impact uh, on the forward spots for sure and um i mean you go ahead and try to play those three guards together a lot if you want to I I have a feeling though it's going to be I think it's kind of difficult to do. I saw that last year. I mean, you're going to score some points really hard though for Norman Powell to cover some of those forwards. Well, I mean, we saw it in the Denver series. I mean, you got a six yeah. what six three guard guarding a, a guy that's six ten. I mean, the guy's going to have no problem scoring on you. But uh, Dwight, do you think that this this current roster is finally a contender? And is it enough to keep Dane? <laughs> Those are two separate questions. <laughs> I, I, um, I, a contender, I have to, I, I would, it's hard for me to say anybody's a contender until I see them on the floor. You know, even the Lakers, I don't know how good they're going to be with that crew that they have because uh, injuries are in the offing. And that's the same way we talked about Nance. 
NASA's got to stay healthy, and that's been a difficult thing for him to do. Um, miss a game once in a while, that's fine, but load management might be necessary with him. You, you've got to take care of him, and you've got to bubble wrap Nurkic. You've got to get Nurkic through a season yeah. pretty soon where he's healthy and get him to the playoffs intact. And, and uh, I think even Dame has starting to show signs of all the minutes, all the games, and uh, you, you need to be careful with him. You can't take advantage of him and play him 39, 40 minutes a game. Same with CJ. I think all those guys have been overplayed. And so you got to be really careful. Uh, lose some battles to win the war. And, and, uh, again, it's hard for me to say, Tim, a, a contender, I don't know. Will it be good enough to keep Dame around? I can't get inside his head either. I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what's important to him. And, and that's what it comes down to. Are his teammates important to him? Is this franchise important to him? Or is he willing to just toss it all and go somewhere else? Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like throughout his time, he had, he had mentioned over and over again that he just, whatever it is that, that he does, he wants to do it here in Portland. So... Yeah. It's it's interesting that all of this is coming out this offseason that, you know, if, if we don't have a, a contending team, then he may request a trade. It's it's um, I guess it gives us something to talk about, huh? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I think players are always to a degree influenced by the people around them, whether that's friends, uh, relatives, agents. All those things are influences over time on players. And these guys have got people in their ear constantly mm -hmm. with all sorts of agendas. You know, they'd just rather see him playing in L.A. or San Francisco or wherever right. because then they'd be closer to him or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so he's hearing stuff all the time, I'm sure. Dwight, as an aside, um, do you think these days it's, it's more important for players to you know, chase that elusive ring, or is it more important to them to get that payday? To get that what? To, to, to get the money. Like, is the money more important than the ring? Or is it the other way around to the players these days? No, I, I think it's both. I think the first contract is the most important thing, that first big contract. Mm -hmm. After that, you go for the ring. But you gotta get the money first. You really do. Unless you're one of those role player guys, where you, yeah, let's see, you're Kent Bazemore. I mean, you can't lose by going to the Lakers. You might pluck a ring, and then that might make your price a little higher. But, you know, he's not going to get the big deal right now. So he's got really no choice. It's either take the average deal and go play in, uh, uh, you know, wherever, or go play in Sacramento, I guess, or chase a ring with LeBron. So, I mean, that's probably the smart choice for him. Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer. Um, Dwight, yeah. we run a three-guard system, or we're going to. I want to say that, and correct me if I'm wrong, no team in history has won a championship with a three-guard rotation, or three-guard starting lineup, who are, who are undersized, even though Dame is not undersized for a point guard, according to, what, Olshay, I think? <laughs> Should we expect to see a move with either CJ or Norm? Uh, I wouldn't expect to see that. Um, not necessarily. And you know what? Here, here's I'm a little different too, Tim. I, 
I don't hold up those. A team has never won this or that with this or that, you know, mm-hmm. because different teams win all the time. I mean, Milwaukee is a kind of team that nobody, you know, I heard so many people say, you can't, you're not going to win a championship with that guy as your centerpiece, meaning Oxacupo. And, and I just, I don't, I remember people telling me all the time, you can't win a championship with Kevin Duckworth at center. Well, then I see teams with uh, Luke Longley at center winning championships, okay? Mm-hmm. So, so don't, Bill Cartwright at center, don't tell me that you can't win with this guy or that guy. You can win with anything if you have the right chemistry and the right talent. And I, I, I think, and I haven't really talked about this on this podcast, but I believe this to be true. The number of threes being taken now some team is going to shock the world by winning a title, shooting 50 or even 60 threes a game, simply because of mathematics. And the, the field goal percentages are improving to the degree that if they don't move that line back at some point, the element of luck is going to step in and govern who wins championships. Because right now, a seven-game series that team that can shoot the, the daylights out of the three can't quite get four wins in a series. They get beat by a team that's got a little more inside on them or maybe rebounds better or something. But there is going to be a point where you shoot well enough, you can go all the way playing that way. And I, I believe that to be true. And I think we see it in college where the three-point line's easier. We see some of those teams go a long way just making a ton of threes. And it's just simple math. And you don't even have to be a good team to do that. You just have to keep that hot streak going. That's all you have to do because it's impossible to really defend good three-point shooters. It's really hard to do that. You get drive and kick and you're either going to give up a layup or a wide open three. You've got to get help on the inside when somebody drops. So I, I see that happening someday. So you can kind of toss out all those old bromides about, <laughs> well, you can't win with this, you can't win with that. I'm not sure you can't win any way you want to win if you get lucky enough or do the right thing. Look, Milwaukee got lucky, too. I mean, how many injuries do other teams have to get? It's like the Blazers getting to the Western Conference Finals that year. Injuries almost all the way through really help them. Mm-hmm. Injuries can be a big key for you if you can get the other teams to get hurt and you don't get hurt. Phoenix last year, they never got hurt. Which was surprising to me. Those guys played the whole season. I'm surprised Chris Paul didn't catch an injury somewhere. Exactly. Well, he did, but he was able to get through it. You know, he had the shoulder thing or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And and I I just think um, that's a big part of it every year. Who gets hurt, who doesn't. Yeah. Um, You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, I have two more questions for you before I transition and, and let Eric take over for a little while. Um, on our last episode, we asked each other uh, who we see having a breakout year this this year for the Blazers. Um, Eric chose Anthony. Um, ben, unfortunately, chose Derek Jones Jr. <laughs> uh, ben, do you want to change your, your choice? Yeah, I am uh, substituting that, that in Nance Jr. as my breakout player for the Blazers <laughs> okay. this year. <laughs> okay, so Ben chooses Nance. That's allowed as long as you pick another junior. Okay, fair enough. There we go. <laughs> Dwight said it was okay, guys, so it's you know it's all right. Hey, the Godfather yeah. has spoken, uh, and, and, and I chose Nurkic. Do you do you have any guys that you're looking at to to, to maybe make that next step? Um, 
Yeah, I have to go with Simons too. I, I, I think Simons is really, really ready. Um, he's, he's just so talented, such a great athlete and so talented. Um, this is going to be his year, I believe, to really start getting things done. But he, again, you know, they got to find playing time for him. When you look, he's got three veteran guards ahead of him. How much time, unless they want to play a four guard lineup, it's going to be difficult for him to get adequate playing time. So that's what's, you know, that's hard to see. It's hard to see that happening, but there's always an injury along the way too. So he'll get time somewhere somehow and he's going to explode when he does. I, I don't think that's a bad pick at all. In fact, I think that's probably the most likely. I just like being different. Um, last question from me anyway uh the the over under for the blazers uh this next season is 44 and a half wins what are you taking dwight over i i don't hesitate on that i would say the over uh Traditionally, they're underestimated at the start of the year and overestimated at the end of the year. It seems like somebody's always picking them to go all the way or something like Barkley's always saying that they're going to go to the final. $100,000, right? So they're, <laughs> yeah, and they're always underrated at the start where people don't think they've done anything. And I, I think the coaching change is going to make a big difference. All right. I think we're all in agreement on that one, too. In fact, I think the majority of sports fans are in agreement eric that's it for my part why don't you take over for a little while all right all right so dwight just a little background on you you've been covering the blazers since 1984 is that right off and on yeah yeah year yeah. after i was born <laughs> um and you're a cleveland high guy yeah no no it's, it's great i mean <laughs> we're uh i've been a huge fan you and carrie eggers are you know, I grew up on you guys reading. I mean, that was the, the first the Oregonian and then the Portland Tribune where, you know, that's where I, before the proliferation of the Internet made things more accessible. I mean, you guys were the voice of the Blazers for me. So uh, this is really exciting for me. But uh, you were also a Cleveland high guy. So you're a you're a Portland guy through and through and then also at Portland State. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Two, two years at Oregon and then a few more at Portland State. Yeah. You have seen some of the most amazing Blazer. You actually seen all the amazing Blazer teams. Um, you've seen the championship team. You saw the teams in the late late '80s and early '90s. You saw the 2000 teams in this iteration. What was your favorite team to cover? Oh, it would be uh, the early '90s teams, uh, and for a kind of a selfish reason, Eric. Uh, that's because. Teams didn't charter in those days. They flew on commercial airlines. And I was I flew on the same flights they did and basically stayed in the same hotels they did. So uh, I even rode the team bus from the airport to the hotel. And so I was able at that time to have access that nobody has today. I was able to get to know players pretty well because, you know, you were just on a plane with them all the time. You were bumping into them all the time. And it was a different kind of thing in those days. Practices were open. I went seven straight years covering the team without missing a practice. I went to every practice. And that way I thought I was 
educated on what the team was trying to do. I also knew who was in the coach's doghouse and who wasn't and why. Uh, uh, lots of things. But uh, media were trusted more in those days to do that. And there was no social media, so they didn't have to worry about somebody tweeting something out that happened in practice right away. But those teams were full of really good people. And I still am in touch with some of those people. I wouldn't say they're friends, but they're great acquaintances. And I became close with a lot of the support people. Uh, the late Ron Culp was trainer of the championship team and then through the early 90s. And then Mike Shaminsky followed him. Both great guys who took care of not only the players, but if any of the media got sick, they were right there to help you. And it was just a great time to cover NBA basketball. It was a much smaller fraternity. There weren't as many writers on the beat in those days and got to know a lot of really famous guys in their infancy, really covering the league. And so guys like Sam Smith and Stephen A. Smith and, and uh, oh, Mark Stein, Mark Heisler, and, just a lot of great writers over the years that I got to know real well and uh, made me a better writer just from knowing. Yeah, I think when you talk about a lot more accessibility back in the 90s, it just brings to mind that Clyde Drexler came to Roundtable Pizza in Lake Oswego and, you know, sat with my youth basketball team and signed pieces of paper, which I still have today, with, you know, little little notes inside of that, not just a little scribble of from you see today's players you know Clyde legitimately wrote the note you know it says something like take care of my friend you know Clyde Drexler you know it's just great back in the 90s when the players were just a lot more personable of a of a, of a presence and you know they took the time to do that you know it's just something that instills in my brain to come back to so you know just want to reiterate that the access was a lot more fun back yeah then. you know Ben I yeah, and I, I believe, Ben, that when they traveled commercial, it made them different people because they had to suffer the aggravation that you and me suffer when we go to an airport <laughs> and have to do security or wait on a flight that's two hours late. Or in their case, have people walk up to them and say, God, you're tall. What do you do? You know, what? what's your job? What do you do? Or come up and say, can I have your autograph? And it's 6 a.m. and you're waiting for a 7.30 flight. You know, all those things. They had to They had to learn to deal with that. They had to learn to deal with real life situations. The guys now, very protected, very protected. And and security traveling with them all the time. Those guys in the nice didn't have security, but they didn't need it, you know, and, and they knew how to handle situations. My fondest memories are, are watching players deal with little old ladies or, or kids or whatever. And those guys did it with such grace and style. It was just wonderful to see. And I think it made uh, many friends for the league and for the team to see them doing that. And then in my personal situation, Caldwell Jones uh, bumping into me uh, in an airport saying, don't forget next week, Tuesday, Houston Hobby the Airport. Houston Hobby has the best chili dogs in the league. We were there. I said, I'm with you. I, I'm good on a chili dog. Then I checked the itinerary. We're leaving Houston Hobby at 7 a.m. And so I went back. I said, are you talking about chili dogs in the morning? He said, hey, it opens at 6. We got plenty of time to get it. Needed. Said, okay. 
I'll give that a shot. So obviously I did, and we enjoyed chili dogs together. And that was just, I, Caldwell was a, the late Caldwell Jones, a great man, was one of the best people I ever ran into. Asked him who his favorite actor was one time for a piece we were doing in the, in the paper. And he said, uh, Barney Rubble. I said, Barney Rubble. And you guys are too young for the Flintstones, I guess. He was a cartoon character in the Flintstones. And, and he said, yeah, he said, he, he always made, he, he always made Fred look so good. He was a great second banana, you know, and that was just Caldwell. And I, what's your favorite seafood? He didn't even hesitate. Saltwater taffy. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Caldwell. Great guy. And so many guys that were, you know, Terry Porter, Clive, Kiki. Doc was one of my real favorites. I, I just loved the guy. Uh, Buck Williams. They didn't come any better than those guys. And I was really blessed to be able to get into that era where you could find out what great guys they were. I'm, I'm not saying the guys today aren't great guys. We just aren't close enough to them to really know what kind of people we, they are. And it, I hesitate to portray them in any way like that without really knowing, you know, we're taking people's word for it because players always have that public persona they want to portray and then the private one of what they really are. I, I want to interject real quick with more or less a, a personal story, but I, I kind of wanted to know if, if you were aware of, of these things that they used to do. Um, again, I don't recall whether it was at, it must have been at the Coliseum, but after the games back in the, the early 90s, um, they used to have these uh, meet and greets almost with the players. Uh, and there was like a buffet section. Yeah. That's one of my earliest um, Blazer memories is going to those and every single player would show up, talk to the fans, maybe have a little bit of food, except for one. One person would never show up because we went to a few of them. Um, Uncle Cliffy, he would he would always come and peek in, and no, and just keep going. <laughs> yeah. Well, Cliff and I had a, a stormy relationship again. The late Cliff Robinson. Too many of these guys have passed already. Cliff was uh, notable for an incredible statistic of never playing well in the playoffs after playing very well in the regular season. And you look at his numbers, it's like mind-boggling because Jerome Kersey was the exact opposite. He would play a certain way in the regular season in the playoffs, everything would jump. Not true with Cliff. And I can recall, I, I really wrote some, boy, I was very pointed with Cliff at certain times. and. Uh, I remember he had a terrible playoff series against somebody. And I remember after one game, I wrote that he was a poster child for the Heimlich maneuver. And then another time I wrote that it was hard to shoot threes with both hands around your neck. And uh, so Ouch. <laughs> I believe that was the uh, 95. We, we actually, but you know, when he was done, he, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, later on, after he was done playing, we, we our relationship was good. I used to run into him around town when he was around, and, and we exchanged pleasantries, and he was fine. I got a kick out of him. He had a great sense of humor. And I must say, that man carved out a tremendous NBA career by being available, being able to play every night, and learning that defense was going to keep him in the league 
Hell, he played 20 years, I think. And basically because he could defend, he could make an occasional three, and he was always healthy. He answered the bell. He could play almost every night. So to touch on those 90, you know, the 90, 91, 92 teams, of those three, which one had the best chance had they gotten or to get over the hump? You know, do you think the Detroit series ended the way it should have, the Chicago series ended the way it should have, and then that 91 team, if they were able to get past the Lakers and meet Jordan for his first finals, do you think that's the one that 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 brings a championship back to Portland? Well, Eric, for me, that's a no-brainer question. I, I, I think the Blazer team lost to Detroit and Chicago in the finals. Those teams they lost to were both better than them. I, I firmly believe that. More Hall of Famers, more great players, um, just really, really good teams at the top of their game. But the 91 team was the best team in the league, had the best record in the league, and had beaten the Bulls twice that season. And were very confident they were going to beat them in the finals. And they just couldn't get there. They got behind the eight ball early. They, they, they lost that home game when Vladi did all the flopping and got fouls on Duckworth and got Duck all frustrated, got into his head a little bit, caused him to be a little probably reticent or hesitant in terms of things he wanted to do. And uh, they just didn't get there, didn't get to the finals. That was their best team. That might be the best Blazer Ever. team I've seen other than the championship team. Championship team was incredible, but um, that was a great team and they should have they should have won a title. Bless both of these guys, but I have wondered my entire life why Jerome Kersey dumped the ball to Cliff Robinson instead of just slamming that bad boy right down the throat. Did you ever get any insight into that? Well, because it was the right play. It, uh, no, it was the right play. I, I was on the floor with a great look at that play, and he, he was wide open. He was just wide open, and he just didn't catch the ball. You know, but that series, there was more to that series than just that play. They, You know, that team... I, I felt there was a lot of pressure on that team in the playoffs overall. They struggled in the first round with the Sonics and shouldn't have. Should have just taken care of business and swept them. Instead, it went to five games and it shouldn't have. And, and uh, I just, I kind of thought that there was just something about that team that they were not playing the same way in the playoffs. And they just couldn't get loosened up enough. They should have beat the Lakers. They were better than the Lakers. Um, but that's the way it was. Well, and those were the last good teams that we saw up until, you know, the early 2000s when we had the, the 99-2000 team. So, you know, Adelman leaves in 94. They bring in P.J. Carlissimo. Well, he, was, he didn't He didn't leave. He I got canned, which was a huge mistake. Breaking up the Jeff Petrie-Rick Adelman combo was the biggest mistake this franchise has made. They should both still be. They, they went to Sacramento and showed how good they worked together. And and it was a terrific combination. Jeff was a great GM. Rick was a great coach, uh, quality coach. And it was criminal what happened to those guys because there were other people who wanted power in the organization and undermined everything. 
So let's flash forward. Let's get to that, that 99-2000-2000-2001 team. You were covering them then as well. Uh, Tim just watched the Game 7. I've never watched the Game 7 meltdown uh, a second time. So he had to... Re- this, this is the first time I've rewatched it. How good was that Blazers team, in your opinion? I know that you had said that the access had kind of changed a little bit, but um, what was your interpretation? And-, and I wasn't covering that. I wasn't covering that team. I was writing columns then, uh, I think, at yeah. the Tribune. But my take on that team was... Um, a very, very talented team, but not a great team because they didn't play well together all the time. I think Mike Dunleavy had too many players of talent to get the mix right all the time. And I think they ended up with him having to make too many coaching decisions on who would play and who wouldn't. He really struggled. He wanted to use big guards. Mike always liked to coach that way. Damon Stoudemire ended up on the bench too much, um, especially in times where they needed his shooting or his ball handling. Um, it was just, uh, I always remember that team as kind of a mess that I kind of felt would auto-destruct at some time. Their best player was Rasheed Wallace. Rasheed Wallace had a problem. And it wasn't his attitude. It was the fact that he wouldn't take a big shot at the end of the game. People don't remember that or know that. He, I never saw a guy pass off and give somebody a hot potato. In other words, catch the ball with like half a second on, on the shot clock. Rashid did it constantly. He just didn't want to take that shot. He was not comfortable with being the number one guy on the team. Him getting traded to Detroit was the best thing that ever happened to him. He could just be a number three guy, not worry so much about anything else, and just take the shot when he got it. No pressure on him because he wasn't supposed to win the game. For him. That was somebody else that was supposed to do that. But, uh, you know, he didn't. I think he was 0 for 3 or something in the fourth quarter of that game. He missed they couldn't find anybody to make a shot. They tightened up. Uh, things got really bad real fast. And the Lakers just took control of that game so quickly that it just it was a blink of an eye. And it was over. The following year, they ended up having the best record in the NBA for most of the season. And then Witsit brings Detlef Shrimp out of retirement, puts him back on the bench, grabs Rod Strickland off waivers, and they end up going 8-14 and 14 to end the year and then they flame out against those same Lakers. Yeah. You touched on it earlier. I mean, this is something that you had seen happening or, or foresaw happening. Yeah, it was um, the shrimp. I didn't feel uh, bringing Strickland in hurt because Dame and Rod had Dame. Uh, Damon and Rod had a really good relationship and a lot of mutual respect. Shrimp was not well-liked uh, among uh, the rest of the team. He had special privileges. He was sort of commuting from Seattle, would be allowed to miss a practice or two every once in a while. Witsit thought he was so important that he would give him, cut him some slack, you know, because he brought him out of retirement. It was, uh, he was not a popular player and he didn't help that team at all. Uh, Rod was always a, real personal favorite of mine. I, I thought Rod Strickland's one of the best guys I ever covered. 
personally accountable for his mistakes, which is more and more unusual in professional sports, would always be the first guy to raise his hand to the media and say, I cost us that game. That was my bad. I screwed up. And uh, I always loved him for it. And a really funny, good guy. Um, has gotten a bum rap, I think, in the media a lot. I like Rod a lot. Um, but again, I, I I have to tell you, Eric, I, I just expected that team to do something like that. I mean, that was just, when you throw, and, and what's his famous quote? I wasn't a chemistry major. <laughs> no, you idiot, you weren't. And chemistry is what basketball is all about. You can see it every day in high school, college, whatever. Teams that like each other, play together well, they go further than these teams that don't. And and that's what happened to their teams. Chemistry wasn't there. Uh, he mixed too many bad guys in. You can absorb a bad guy or two, but man, he went and just sought them out. It seemed like and and I mean bringing J.R. Ryder it's just what are you thinking of really and Ruben Patterson come on what are you, are you crazy yeah bringing people like that in just and then just he just throws them at the roster and expects the coach to work it all out it, it's best when the GM and the coach work in concert and talk about what's needed and what the I mean that's the way it, that's the way good teams work so towards the end of that 2001 season we had uh, the the towel incident with Sabonis and Rasheed Wallace, national TV, you know, story comes out many years later that Rasheed also charges Mike Dunleavy in the locker room of that uh, at the end of that game. Uh, Antonio Harvey put out. A- well, or Mike or Mike charged him. I'm not sure. <laughs> Mike Dunleavy never backed down from anybody in his life. He's like a New York street kid <laughs> who had a temper and was not afraid of anybody. And I know Mike's famous comment was, let him go, let him go. He hadn't hit anybody all year. He's not going to hit me. <laughs> Re, uh, last year, you know, uh, Rasheed Wallace and Bonzi Wells both started the Let's Get Technical podcast. And I think on the very first episode, they kind of touch on that particular incident and Rasheed in a roundabout way, tried to make amends and apologized. Do you, and now he's a assistant coach with Penny Hardaway over at Memphis. Do you feel like that was genuine? Have you talked to him recently or had any interactions where you would see that type of growth from him? Well, I don't have any interactions with him. He wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't talk to Kerry Eggers for the book on the jailblazers. You know, that's just not going to happen. Um, I, I don't know. When you apologize that long after something happens, I, I'm never quite sure how to take it. I, I don't know. Reminds me of kind of apologizing to an ex-wife 10 years after the divorce. You know, I don't know. It's a little late for that, you know. And uh, yeah, I'm sure both of those guys have have matured. And, and I, for some reason, they've become fan favorites and people either don't know or they forget. It's like Bonzi Wells and nobody remembers him spitting on other players. I mean, the Chris uh, Mills incident, flipping the treating fans off. horribly. Yeah, I mean, people don't remember this stuff and they don't remember Rashid throwing a towel at Sabonis and don't remember his craziness all over the place. And, you know, I I don't know. I'm at, I'm at a loss on explaining all that. Yeah, and that's understandable. I, and he had a rocky relationship and he was not 
what's funny is towards the end of his tenure, he was not a fan favorite. And I think that a lot of people who are younger now, they just look back and they watch clips of how good he was on YouTube and it changes the perception of how he was. But for those of us, like you said, uh, that lived it and watched the antics, the 40 technicals, the 41 technicals, the ejections, I mean, the Bill Walton dolls getting thrown on the court. I mean, that was not a good look for the team nor the city of Portland, you know, let alone the player. Um, It is a little surprising that people kind of have gravitated back to liking those guys. Um, well, it's kind of the, the anti-hero thing. You know, it's kind of big right now anyway. It's like, we're going to make the bad guy a hero. You see that in movies, you see it in TV yeah. stuff. Um, moving on from that, you know, those teams, and we're just picking your brain because you are, like we said, you're the, the institution on Portland basketball. The Roy Aldridge Odin Blazers fast forward to the the later 2000s to me that's the biggest what if what if in franchise history but for you it might you know I, I put on the outline you know it might be 1978 when Bill breaks his foot yeah it was 78 because I mean we didn't see enough of, of Odin Roy and Aldridge together to say that was going to be a championship team I don't know it was going to be a real good team I don't know if they were going to go all the way or not. The Walton teams, we'd already seen them win a championship, okay? And we saw them get off to a 50-10 and 10 start the next season. Just killing teams, especially on the road. They go on the road, just embarrass good teams. And they were so, they were really fun to watch because they ran and they moved the ball. They played pretty basketball. And it wasn't just Walton getting hurt. Everybody got hurt. You know, Bobby Gross, who was... A terrific player. He got, you know, and people don't even remember. MVP voting of the finals in 77, Bobby Gross finished third behind Walton and Julius Irving, for heaven's sakes. He was a terrific player. And, and uh, gosh, Hollins and Twardzik and Lucas and all those guys, everybody went down. It was terrible what happened. And then the greed thing kind of set in, too. And no one ever remembers that. But... In those days, Larry Weinberg, the owner, did not renegotiate contracts. And a lot of owners didn't. And it's not like today with all the rules. Today, you don't do that either. But in those days, it was just a, you could do it. But his his philosophy was, if you sign a contract, I'm not going to come and ask you to play for less. So don't knock on my door and want more money just because you played well. That's what we're paying you for. But a lot of players wanted to renegotiate. And some of them went south on the, on the team. And that led to the downfall of that group, too. Uh, I coach up at Corbett High School uh, where Larry Steele is a regular at our games. And I have asked him, you know, his thoughts. And he agrees with you, too. He said 1978. He, uh, that, that seems to be the consensus for, for people who were, who were there. And fortunately, we didn't get to see that. Um, Being there and seeing that in the Coliseum, being in the city, what was that like? Can you explain that experience? <laughs> well, it's the birth of Blazer Mania, and I think a lot of people see excitement around town when the team does well. Uh, I don't know if it'll ever again be like it was that time, because the first time was always special. And, I mean, the whole town was crazy, just crazy. 
And I think in those days too, they felt like they had, they really had a connection to the players. Players were very uh, approachable. And um, I mean, Bill Walton was playing playground basketball at Wallace Park with guys at noon, uh, day before a game or something, you know, I mean, these guys were around town, they were available and it was a different era uh, in basketball and in life. And so it was really special. You couldn't go anywhere in town without seeing go blazers or seeing pictures or posters or whatever. It was a fun time. It's hard to imagine what that's like as, as you know, our age, obviously we, we never got to experience that, but, but it's, it's interesting to hear your, your takes on, on, you know, how it felt to everybody, how the city went crazy and whatnot. Um, you know, I remember that, you know, we talked about that, early 2000s team we talked about the early 90s team i remember how crazy the city was getting and to me and to me that was that was that was it like that was the feeling that that i mean it it gave me goosebumps as a kid right um do you think that that portland gets there if if you know this iteration of the team makes it say to the finals does does the city get that crazy again or have we entered a time where, you know, dealing with the pandemic, dealing with everything else that, that's going on, is it kind of, maybe maybe it never gets back to that that point where that, that level of excitement. What do you think about that, Dwight? Well, Tim, I don't know that anything uh, will have the impact in today's world that it did back then sports or otherwise because we're so divided nowadays there's so many other things going on other people are involved you know i'm sure there are timber fans who wouldn't walk across the street to see a blazer game and don't care about it you know and at that time this was it you know it's like kind of the only game in town there were the portland buckaroos the minor league hockey team that were very successful and very popular but the blazers were the big thing and college football in those days was not a big deal in oregon tell you that because the teams weren't successful and and you know they're playing in small stadiums and not drawing big crowds so the area was right for something like that to happen i i don't see it on the level it was but it'll still be pretty spectacular if something like that would happen so with the the boom of social media uh everybody gets an opinion everybody gets to to chime in everybody's an armchair quarterback you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, you, you have a reputation on social media being a little surly and I love it. That's one of my favorite things about you is that you've always been really objective with your sports coverage. Um, why do you think all these young guys want to run their mouth so much about objectivity and professional sports coverage? Well, because they can, <laughs> you know, that, that's the thing, you know, there's no, you know, when I, when I started, I worked for a sports editor and I worked around other professional sports writers. And the first thing they teach you is uh, you, you do your job, you cover this team as if you're covering an election. You, you don't take sides, you are objective and you do it the right way. And I was just brought up that way. Nowadays, I'm not so sure people want their sports coverage that way. I'm not so sure they don't want a homer doing it. I, I think they want to hear the positive stories about their team. They don't want anybody pointing out the flaws. They just want to hear all the good things 
And uh, when the team loses, they don't read anything about it. They don't want to see it. And when the team wins, they're happy to jump back on the bandwagon. So, you know, it's like uh, I, I see what's going on and, and uh, I'm fine with that. I accept that because I've always been willing to change and adapt, but I won't change or adapt in the way I cover the team. And uh, players nowadays don't understand it at all. I mean, I've had players it's like, hey, what? You know, why don't you move to another town if you don't like us? You know, it's like, well, no, that's not the way it works. You know, it's, uh, I'll, you know, what what players don't understand and fans don't understand is if I'm objective and I write about the flaws, when I write something good, it carries much more weight. It's like this guy tells the truth. He's not just floating BS out there all the time. He's telling the truth. So when he says this is a good team, it's probably a good team, you know, and uh, more people need to realize that. And I mean, you see it more on television with uh, your average uh, broadcasters than you do in print, uh, where, I mean, I watch a lot of Major League Baseball and there's just so many play-by-play guys that are just total homers right now. And I think it's what the public wants, probably. Let Let me just intervene real quick, Eric. You just said Major League Baseball. Is it coming to PDX? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think it is. Uh, it may not be while I'm still around, but it's it's going to come. I, I don't know. It's, it's too good a town not to. And the people that are behind this movement have the intelligence and the money to make it happen. But they're being really smart in low profile. Don't go dragging around what you're going to do until you do it. And, and I think that's the way to approach it. In the past, we've had a lot of people talking about doing this and doing that. And all they did is get people excited. Yeah, I mean, the mock-ups for that stadium on the waterfront are just amazing if it were to come to fruition. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, do you, do you see the yeah. A's relocating or even further down the line possibility of an expansion? Well, I think there's going to be expansion in all major league sports. I, I, I think we're going to see it in basketball and I think we're going to see it in baseball because the money involved is just too easy to get. They'll get tired of taking all this gambling money at some point. They'll decide they need expansion because as a guy who grew up when pro sports just totally build a wall against gambling and now they've just opened the doors. There's going to be sports books in every arena within two years i'd say i think we'll see one in the moda center within two years there's going to be a place where you go up sit down watch the game on tv and make a bet on how many more points dame's going to score before after you know it's just the way it's going to be tim i'm gonna kick it back to you buddy well dwight we have one last question for you before we go uh and it's actually eric had brought it up while we were running this outline but how happy are you to see guys like Ime Udoka, Damon Stoudemire uh, getting a shot at NBA coaching opportunities? Real happy. Real happy. Couldn't happen to two better guys. I mean, I've known Damon for so many years and, and uh, knew his father at Portland State, actually. People don't realize Willie Stoudemire, Damon's dad, he was a hell of a player. I mean, he was a big-time college player, man. He was really good, and so was his uncle Charlie, who was also a really good football player at Portland State. Um, 
I, I like him a lot. He's a very smart basketball guy. He's going to be terrific and should be a head coach in the NBA someday. Ime is just one quality guy. And his story, coming out of Jefferson High School and playing at Portland State, working his way up in the business is such a testimony to his character, his intelligence, um, just an amazing story. Uh, he came, you know, where he came from, there shouldn't be a bridge to coaching in the NBA. That he built that bridge, you know. And I, I, I'm proud of both of those guys for getting where they are. They're such great representatives of our town. Both those guys are just high quality people, and I wish them both the best. I, I hope they both get rings. Oh yeah, which will mean they're the greatest coaches <laughs> in history. I love it. I love it. Well, Dwight. It's hard for me to put into words how grateful we are for you to joining our show, but we just want to say thank you. Uh, we appreciate your insight. We appreciate you taking the time. Um, if, if you have anything going on, uh, we want to give you uh, a moment to kind of let our listeners know what it is, where they can find you, um, what it is they should be looking forward to. Uh, I, I got nothing. <laughs> Tim, I... I right. <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of, you know, the company is going away. NBC Sports Northwest, everybody knows by now it's going away because mm -hmm. we didn't get the contract for the Blazers. So I, I, I don't have a job right now and I really don't want to retire because my wife's still working. And um, so I'd like to be doing something, but nothing has come across my desk so far that I'm all that interested in. But I, if I do something, it's going to be something I like, something that's fun. And, uh, you know, talk radio maybe or uh, writing on, you know, writing what I can write. I'm working on a book for a friend and I'm staying real busy, but uh, looking for something to do probably. But right now I'm looking to get out of here because I'm supposed to meet somebody. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Deal. <laughs> they're waiting on the first. They're waiting on the first tee. So, oh, uh, gotcha. All right. Well, we better let you go. Um well, thank you again. We appreciate it. You guys asked great questions. I want to say that I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun and I highly recommend the podcast. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Uh, shout out to my two co-hosts, uh, Blazer Ben, Eric, the Encyclopedia Foster, uh, our, our network, the Basketball Podcast Network, DraftKings, and especially you, our listeners, our Twitter followers, our bucket busters. You make it so easy to keep stepping up to this mic. Keep reaching out to us on Twitter, at BustaBucket, with your comments and questions. We love building community with you all. Check out our, reps, our website, BustedBucket.Pod.com, and our merch store, store.BustedBucketPod.com, where everything you buy contributes to community projects in the future. Thank you all for your continued support. Don't forget to rate, follow, and subscribe if you're digging what we're saying. Be good to each other, Rip City. We'll catch you next time on the Busted Bucket Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>